Welcome to Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and we have two guests in the podcast booth today to discuss domestic violence. The first is Thomas Mannion, who's the director of the Family Justice Center, and our second guest is uh, Cheryl Kravitz, who is a survivor of domestic violence. Welcome, Mr. Mannion. Welcome, Ms. Kravitz. Thank you. Thank you. A little bit more about Mr. Mannion. He's the director of the Family Justice Center. He's been there since 2013 in various capacities. He's been the director for the past, officially the past four years. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. And Ms. Kravitz, is, you're the president of your own communications company. Yes, I am. And you are an expert in almost everything, uh, it seems. Oh, Motivational yeah. speaking, <laughs> community relations, crisis communications, media relations, diversity training, and among a host of other things. Thank you. So first, let's talk about the scope of the problem of domestic violence. What kind of stats do you have for domestic violence in Montgomery County? Well, we know that one in four women and one in seven men will be a victim of some form of physical abuse at the hands of an intimate partner. And we know that this problem is pervasive throughout all socioeconomic groups, religious groups, cultural groups. I mean, this is a problem that cuts through regardless of any sort of demographic differences between folks. So it's a pervasive and just, just a huge problem all over the country. So if with that breakdown of one in four women and one in seven men, most of the abusers then would be men, correct? I would say, I mean, with that statistic in mind, yes. But it also depends on how you define intimate partner violence and how you define domestic violence. The hallmarks of domestic violence are these ideas of power, manipulation, and control. And it's one intimate partner, whether they're married, formerly married, whether they have children in common, dating, um, if they've just you know, had a sexual relationship. If within that dynamic there is one partner who is trying to manipulate, control, and exert power over the other individual, that is in and of itself domestic violence. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. On TV, we see a lot of you know, physical violence being portrayed in, you know, on TV shows and, and things like that. But there are other ways that that can manifest itself verbal abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse. And so I think when we talk about the statistic, the one in four women, one in seven men, that's talking specifically about physical violence. And if we look at the broad definition of domestic violence that includes these other types of violence, we find that you know both women and men are equally likely to be abusive. Interesting. So how often are children involved? I would say that children are often the victims that people can sometimes forget about um, when it comes to providing services. Any relationship in which there is intimate partner violence occurring and there are children involved, those children are being impacted. Um, they are much more likely to either become an abuser or a victim later on in their life. And we know that intimate partner violence is, you know, if it's witnessed by the child, it can be a learned behavior. And it has profound implications on their emotional health going further in life. So anytime there are children involved in the relationship, they're being impacted. Okay. So you described other types besides physical, but how physical abuse is the predominant form of domestic violence, is it not? I would say verbal and emotional abuse is probably the most common. That being said, when we talk about avenues that someone has that they can take to address this issue and to go on a path to safety. You know, if you're talking about getting a protective order from court or filing a criminal charge or, or something like that, 
you know, if someone is just verbally abusive towards you, there's no criminal consequence to that. So while verbal and emotional abuse are, I think, much more common, the physical abuse is what really will spark an intervention. It's easier to count. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And how often is money involved? Money is involved in most, if not all, of the cases that we see in some form or another. It may not be the predominant form of abuse, but it always plays a role. We see a lot of folks at the Family Justice Center who, you know, a lot of times the abuser is maybe the breadwinner of the family. And the victim in the case, they may not have a job of their own. They may not have their own bank account. They may not have access to or control over their own finances. And that's, again, like I said before, the hallmarks of this type of abuse are power, manipulation, and control. And things like money, things like immigration status, things like employment status, those are all tools that abusers can use. They have that at their disposal to exert this control over the other person. Are the numbers increasing? I don't know the statistic nationwide. I can tell you that at the Family Justice Center, we've been open for 10 years. We opened in 2009. For much of the first many years that we were open, we would see around 11 or 1,200 people per year we would provide services to. That number has increased in the last year. We're now up to about 1,600 people per year. I don't know that that's indicative of an increase in violence. I think it is more so illustrating an increase in people willing to come forward, an increase in people willing to seek help, an increase in outreach efforts to different communities, you know, with you know, things like the Me Too movement and a lot of really high-profile domestic violence cases among celebrities. These issues have really come to the forefront of the public consciousness, and so I think people are more willing to talk about these issues and come forward, which is really great. You don't have anything that, that would point to, say, something about the times we're living in to say that this is why the numbers are increasing? Not off the top of my head. I don't think – I don't have a solid statistic or illustration to show that there's anything pertinent to the times we live in that would be causing an increase in anything. I think a lot of intervention numbers are increasing. I think more protective orders are being filed. I think more criminal cases are being open. I think service centers are seeing an increase in victims coming forward. But I don't know that that it would be due to any um, particular increase in violence or due to political climate or anything. In researching uh, this podcast, I came across something that I, I was never thought of it this way. But of course, I've heard of it, just not named this way. It was digital abuse. Mm, mm -hmm. Can you describe it and define it and tell us? Yes. Well, it's something that, that didn't really exist 20, 30 years ago. It, it, it didn't exist. And with the advent of smartphones and social media and people being connected to everyone else through this wonderful thing we call the internet, <laughs> with people being connected to one another 24-7, there is this whole new opportunity to manipulate people, to exert power, to exert control over these other individuals. I think a lot of people nowadays, we are very comfortable sharing where we are at all times and what we're doing and who we're with and taking photos. And what a lot of people don't realize is that people who are abusive, people who have the potential to be an abusive partner, can use these tools against their victim. Things like stalking. We have a lot of people who come to the Family Justice Center who say, I don't know how this is happening, but I'm here, I'm seeking services, and right now he or she is texting me saying, I know where you are, please don't do this. Come to find out it's because they have a GPS location services enabled on their phone, 
and they're being tracked that way. We have people who are abused emotionally through social media, posts on people's Facebook pages, Instagram posts. We talk about things like revenge porn, which is where people you know, trade intimate photos when they're in a relationship, and then those photos or videos or, or what have you are used against them. They're posted for the public eye or they're sent to family members, or there's a threat to send them to family members if you don't do what I say. So this technology and social media has really brought in a whole new dynamic of abuse that people have at their disposal, which is unfortunate. But, you know, at the Family Justice Center, the staff there are all very well-versed in all of these new forms of social media and technology services and GPS location services and devices that people use. And so we try and stay on top of that so we can keep people safe. Has online dating changed anything? I think in some ways, yes. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, because, you know, what is online dating really replacing? It's replacing, you know, maybe being connected through friends. It's replacing meeting people at a bar. So I think the core of the dangers of meeting up with a stranger or engaging in any type of dating behavior or sexual acts with someone that you haven't met before, I think that all the core of that still exists. It's just kind of in a different form. It's on these dating apps as opposed to meeting at a bar. Let's take a step back. Describe the Family Justice Center. I mean, what exactly are you and how can people access your services? Sure, absolutely. So the Family Justice Center is, we have a really unique model of providing services. And that model started out in San Diego back in the early 2000s. The whole notion is that there are so many different factors at play in a domestic violence situation. And no one government agency, no single nonprofit, no single group acting alone is going to be able to address the entirety of the problem. And so what the Family Justice Center model is, is a co-location. It takes one building and you bring together all of the service providers at the county level, um, service providers at the state level, local nonprofits who are service providers in, in all these different ways and addressing all of these different issues. And we are co-located under one roof. Before we existed, we opened in 2009. Before we opened, an individual who was going through a domestic violence situation would have to go to 15 or 20 different locations throughout the county um, just to get all of the services available to them. Now they can get all of those in one place. All of the services are free. We're located in downtown Rockville at 600 Jefferson Plaza. We're just a quick walk from the district court and the circuit court. Um, We're open Monday through Friday, 830 to 5. But again, we're a very collaborative organization, so we collaborate extensively with the Crisis Center, the Montgomery County Crisis Center, which is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so the whole idea behind the Family Justice Center is co-located services, collaborative interventions, and creating a family-friendly space where people can come and receive the help that they need. What are the holes in the services that the county provides? I mean, is there still something that, that you guys need to do? When we talk about services, I think no system is perfect and people can always do more. I mean, obviously, with unlimited funding and unlimited resources, we would love to be able to, you know, every single person that's going through a, a situation, get them a new house, get them a job. I mean, these, we would love to be able to do these things. I think with the services or uh, sorry, with the resources that we have available, I think we're doing a great job. There are certainly limitations. You know, resources aren't infinite, but I think we're doing a great job with, in collaboration with all of our amazing local nonprofits, helping people go back to school, helping them get jobs so they can sustain themselves without relying on someone who abuses them. 
helping them hold their abuser accountable, either through the civil justice system in the form of a protective order or in the criminal justice system in the form of a criminal case. Um, The most important thing is, like I said, anyone who's going through a situation like this has had their power completely taken away from them in whatever way that that has manifested itself in this particular situation. You know, they can't talk to who they want to. They can't eat when they want. They can't spend money the way they want. They're not even necessarily assured of their physical safety from one moment to the next. And so our motto at the Family Justice Center is, you have to choose your path forward. We will offer all of these different options, and we will break down barriers to make sure that you can access them. But part of the healing process and getting out of these unhealthy relationships is taking your power back and choosing your path forward. And we're going to be there to support anyone who's in that situation all day, every day. I think now's a good time to break. This is Doug Tallman, a senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with Thomas Mannion of the Family Justice Center. We didn't hear much from Ms. Kravitz in this segment, but we'll talk to her coming right up. This is Montgomery Talks. We'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back. This is Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I've been talking with Thomas Mannion at the Family Justice Center about domestic violence, and I'm bringing in Cheryl Kravitz, who has her own story about domestic violence to tell. Why don't you start? Well, I think one of the things that's important to remember is what Tom talked about is that there are so many different forms of abuse. I suffered all of them. And the thing is that people in the general public might not know what to look for. And I'll use myself as an example because I think because I was suffering from every one of them, people could have, if they had known better, perhaps stepped in earlier. But they didn't know. I was embarrassed. And I kind of hid myself from getting help. As Tom mentioned, it's not just physical abuse, it's emotional, it's financial, it's isolation, it's all of those things. So let me start at the beginning. I was living in Chicago. I was a very young mom. I had my first daughter when I was just 17, and my parents disowned me. So I was very, very vulnerable. I was with her dad for a while, and then we broke up. I peaked young. I was editor of the Hyde Park Herald in Chicago at the age of 21, and was living in Hyde Park, was pretty much thriving. My parents and I had reconciled, and I was asked to interview a man who had just been hired as the executive director of the Hyde Park Jewish Community Center. And everyone said, you know, he's quite a catch. He's single and he's Yale educated and he's handsome and on and on and on. So I did go interview him and I was vulnerable. What I know now is that these abusers, they look for that vulnerability. They know they can be laser focused on who is going to be a good victim for them. I was, most definitely. I was young. I had a child. I had been disowned by my parents. I didn't know if that was going to happen again. And I really didn't have a lot of money because a reporter at that time didn't make a whole lot of money. 
So we started going out, and within just a couple of months, we were engaged. That should have been a red flag. It most certainly would be a red flag now. I was getting flowers. I was getting candy. We were going on trips, you know, on and on, and I just was swept in. They're very seductive, these abusers. You don't quite know what's coming. And we did get engaged the night before the wedding. His dad, my future father-in-law, said to me, you do know he's been married twice before. I didn't know that. I was on the phone with one of my best friends who had given me an antique cup for an engagement present. I had just learned that. He got mad because I was on the phone with her, grabbed the cup, and threw it at a wall and smashed it. These signs were all over the place, but I was too young. As Tom had mentioned, you know, people really didn't know about the signs way back when. So I went ahead and married him. He started becoming not so much abusive to me, but verbally abusive, that's the only word I can think of, to his staff at the JCC, to the point that his bosses said, you know, you got to get out of here. And they offered him a job in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, we were living in Chicago, so imagine some you know, this job in Chicago that I loved, moving all the way across the country to Oklahoma. By that point in time, he had been taking my paychecks. He said, because I didn't really understand how to work with money. And so right away, we were set up for a financial abuse. So I had no money of my own. We moved across the country to Oklahoma. So there are a couple different hallmarks of abuse. We're isolated. I'm isolated. I have no money of my own. I don't have a job at the point that we moved there, and I've got a small child. We moved to Oklahoma. He was not only head of the JCC there, he was the president of the Jewish Federation. So he had this big job, which is something that I want to point out. There are stereotypes about who is a victim of abuse. The tendency is to think that it's not going to be a middle-class woman living in, and we lived in, basically a mansion in Oklahoma, and, you know, and who comes across as someone who wouldn't let that happen to her. So there's a stereotype involved. And that stereotype, I think, contributes to why a woman in that position doesn't leave, because she doesn't want to break what people think about her. We were in Oklahoma. I got a job almost immediately as the director of communications and fundraising for the American Red Cross there. So I had a big job, state of Oklahoma. So I'm doing all the media and I'm raising all the money. And I started writing for one of the newspapers there, the Tulsa Tribune, and for Tulsa Magazine. So my name was getting out in the community. Meanwhile, at home, the verbal abuse most certainly was increasing. But the other thing that happened is I was having to bring my paychecks home and turn them over to him. So externally, outside of that house, I'm like this rising star. Inside the house, the abuse was getting more and more diabolical. Tom knows this. I don't remember the first time that I was hit. I do remember the verbal abuse. I remember pushes, but I don't remember a full-on punch for the first couple of years. As things got worse in the house, he started drinking, although there's not really a correlation between abuse and alcoholism. They're, you know, sometimes abusers are alcoholics, sometimes they're not. You know, it just depends. But he began drinking more and more. And as that was happening, 
my star continued to rise. I was winning all kinds of writing awards. I was getting promoted by the Red Cross. I was brought to D.C. a number of times to participate in national uh, media discussions, etc. So as I'm going up, he's going down and continuing to drink to the point that I was brought to Atlanta to receive a big award from the Red Cross. And while I was in Atlanta, I love this story, he was arrested for drunk driving in Tulsa. And in Tulsa at that time, both the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune, the two newspapers there, printed the names of people who were arrested for drunk driving on the front page of the newspaper. Well, oh my. So I come home and he lost his job. And so at that point, I learned that everything that had happened prior to that was basically a rehearsal for what was to come. This part is hard to tell, but I talk about it because I want women and men to know that they're not alone. The abuse kept getting worse. So as I said, I didn't write, really remember, I still don't, went the first punch. But the punches got worse. He forbid me to sleep in the same bedroom with him, and so I had to sleep either on the kitchen floor, surrounded, we had three dogs, surrounded by the dogs, or in the hallway. And in the hallway, he had taken everything out of the cabinets in the kitchen and lined everything. I, I have no idea why, in the hall. And then he would take his vodka bottles and have like this obstacle course. I could sleep there, I could sleep, you know, in the kitchen, or I could sleep in the same room with my daughter. My daughter, and we talked about this a little bit before, was she was never physically or verbally abused by him, but she was a child witness. And child witnesses of abuse have, they have a rough time because they're hiding and they want to protect their parent. They don't know what to do. She and I couldn't really talk about it, and I was really afraid for her. So whenever I, and I still had this big job at the Red Cross, whenever I felt that there was an incident going to happen, I would ask a friend of my daughter's mom if she could spend the night at her house. So fast forward about a year, things are continuing to get worse, and I was asked to run for the Board of Education in Tulsa. And without any, I don't even know why, I said yes, I won. But I'm running for an election. I have this big job at the Red Cross and I'm writing, but meanwhile, things are getting worse and worse and worse at home. Summers in Tulsa are very, very, very hot and humid. They're really nasty. The abuse was, I was black and blue from the neck down. Abusers are very crafty. They usually don't hit your face. You're, you're you know, black and blue, but you they don't touch your face so nobody can tell. So I was always wearing... This is a sign, turtlenecks, long sleeves, long pants in the heat of a Tulsa summer. I was never inviting anyone over to my house because all this stuff was in the hall and, you know, it was just a mess. He had started threatening to, this is another marker, to, I had a favorite dog and he threatened to slit my dog's throat in front of me. When he didn't do it, he took the dog's flea spray and sprayed it into my eyes while I was tied to a chair. That's the kind of insidious stuff these guys think of. One night, it was getting worse, and I asked a friend if my daughter could spend, the same friend, if my daughter could spend the night at her house. And my friend said, you're being heard, aren't you? I get goosebumps every time I say it. She saw what was going on, and she had the courage to step forward to see how she could help. So I said to her, yeah, I am. Can my daughter spend the night at your house? She said, okay, but 
I'm going to call you about midnight to make sure that you're okay. This is what happened. I got home from the Red Cross that day, and he was just really crazy. I was going to heat a dinner. This was before microwaves. I heated dinner in, frozen dinner in the oven. He grabbed my arms. I still have some scarring, and grabbed them both and stuck them into the lit oven. Then he started kicking me, punching me, and he was really drunk, and he went to another room and passed out. I was all injured, and so I went, We, as I said, we live in this mansion. So I go into another room, put medicine on, and then... I was crying. I forgot about my friend was going to call. This was before cell phones. So I went into this other room and fell asleep. Before I fell asleep, I remember saying to myself, if anybody can get me out of here, if I can just have the courage to leave, I will devote my life to helping other people get out of these kinds of relationships. And then I finally fell asleep. I heard knocking on the door. It's about one in the morning. She had called. I never heard the phone ring because I was in this other room. I opened the door. It was the police and my friend. And I thought, oh, my God, there's my sign. I walked out. I never went back. And there was a group in Tulsa, Domestic Violence Intervention Services. I knew them, had been doing some work with them, oddly enough. They stepped in and they helped me. But what was different then from now is there wasn't a family justice center. So as Tom mentioned earlier, I had to go to the police, to an attorney, to get a bodyguard, because I was under a lifetime protective order because of his craziness, they wanted us to be the test case to treat domestic abuse as a crime. By that point, I was so beaten down that I just, my attorney was fabulous, but I I couldn't, I just couldn't go, you know, this would have been national news, and I just, I couldn't do it. But the upshot was, is that I got out, had the attorney. I had a wonderful boss at the time at the Red Cross. And how I wound up here in Maryland is that the Red Cross offered me a job as director of media relations in D.C. I know he had something to do with that to get me out of Oklahoma because I was being stalked. And so for years and years, as I moved here, I carried the protective order with me because I he threatened that at some point he was going to come back and kill me. So I had the protective order with me about eight years ago, nine years ago. A friend called me who's still a reporter, and he said, you've got to sit down. I said, what? He goes, he's dead. My ex had died. And that was my sign that I could come out from hiding and start talking about this. So I started, I wrote for the Washingtonian and for the Washington Post. I still get calls from people who see those articles and want help. So one of the reasons I volunteer with the Family Justice Center in Montgomery County is to provide that kind of support to women who are the way I was those many years ago, hiding and thinking there's no one there to help because we are here to help. Mm-hmm. We are here to help. It's one phone call away. You had a sign. You, you described it as a sign, the, the police and your friend mm-hmm. showing up at your front door. What does it take to make that step away from these types of relationships? It can take up to seven times for a woman or someone being abused to leave. It comes from within. It can get very frustrating. I know because I'm working with women right now who are in these situations, and for many reasons, they don't want to leave. 
They don't want to leave because they're not working outside the home and their partner isn't giving them any money. They don't want to leave because they have little children. They don't want to leave because their self-esteem is in shreds on the ground. They don't know what to do. What it took for me finally, I think, is understanding that anything that was going to happen moving forward was going to be better than what was going on in that house. And that message is so hard for somebody who is being abused to know. Because as I mentioned, your reality flips. You think the reality is what's going on inside versus the reality is actually what's outside, which is the people that are going to help you. And I think for me, what happened in Oklahoma is that, as I said, this friend helped get me out. I started doing some volunteer work with domestic violence intervention services there and came up with this program called Friends Outreach. And so the idea was that I worked with friends of people who were being abused to train them to know what to do when and how to come back and how to go forward and get them out. They have to be ready. What are the kinds of things you do to get them ready? I mean, it, it can't be simple. I and mean, it's not simple. I'm working with somebody right now. It's actually her sister who's in the abusive relationship. She just moved into a shelter. It's not here. The woman lives in Pennsylvania. She moved into a shelter with her kids last night. What I'm working with her sister on is to not be judgmental, to give her all the information she possibly can have including, and her sister is willing to do this, my friend, to let her move in with her girls to her house for a while. My friend, the one who got us out in Oklahoma, we lived with them for a couple of months because I had no money. I had no money. And so she was supportive that way. Giving my friend the names of other organizations that she might talk to. She's in the shelter. I said, the girls don't want to go to another school. Here's an example. Uh, they want to stay in the same school. I said, then you're going to call, you tell her to call that school right now and not release those girls to their father or any of his relatives because they're sneaky. And so she did that right away on Monday morning to make sure that that was, that was done. Make sure that she's got some money somewhere. Leave her car someplace so that he doesn't, we don't know if he's tracking her car. You know, there's things to do. A really good domestic violence prevention organization or places like the Family Justice Center, there are all kinds of things that you can do to put together an escape plan. Many, many of them. And one of the things I'm doing with her is giving her that information so she can give it to her sister. So if a woman does need to get out of an abusive situation, that's what the Family Justice Center is for. What's the best way for them to access you guys? So the Family Justice Center is a walk-in facility. So they can walk in at any time, Monday through Friday, 830 to 5. We're located at 600 Jefferson Plaza on the fifth floor in Rockville. Our phones are also available to take any kind of calls from anyone who's in need of help. Our phone number is 240-773-0444. Could you repeat that, please? Sure. 240-773-0444. That's the main number for the Family Justice Center. Okay. And I assume you're on the web? Yes, sir. Uh, If you go to the Montgomery County website, it's montgomerycountymd.gov, and then it's uh, backslash FJC. Or you can, it's also probably easier to just Google Montgomery County Family Justice Center. Right. And we'll be that first hit. 
Right. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our engineer today was Carolyn Roskowskis. Our executive producer is Gail Evans. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.